Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. The ribosome is the mother of all molecules, without which nothing lives. This month, the Nobel Prize winner Venki Ramakrishnan, in conversation with Vivian Parry, tells the story of the race to uncover the structure of the ribosome. A fundamental discovery that resolves an ancient mystery of life itself and could lead to the development of better antibiotics to fight the most deadly diseases. Tonight, we're going to be talking about The Gene Machine, Venki's uh, wonderful book. And if you haven't read it yet, I urge you to read it. It's a great read. And this is going to be a story of a career in science that could, at any moment, have not ended as it has done. It's a story, I think, that illustrates the march of science perfectly. It's the way that intractable problems suddenly become solvable because of advances in technology. It's a story of intense competition and prizes. And finally, it's a story about science and how it works and this man, Venki Ramakrishnan. And what I wanted to start with, Venki, was a bit about you, before we get to the star of the show, which is, of course, the ribosome, I wanted to take us back to where you started. So you were born in northwest India. Your parents were, were scientists. In, in South India. South India, sorry. Your parents uh, were scientists, but you didn't get into any top science schools. So you... If somebody had come and seen you then, you would not be somebody that they would have said, this is somebody who's going to go far. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say because um, most bright students in India wanted to do engineering or medicine. And they would go to take this big national exam and there were all these coaching classes that they would have to go to in order to prepare for the exam. And my parents were quite intellectual. They, they thought this was all nonsense and, you know, they weren't going to pay for any of that. And uh, so uh, I didn't do very well on the, any of these exams and, and I didn't get into any of these um, Indian Institutes of Technology, the IITs or, uh, you know, one of the top medical schools. But my mother um, wanted me to take this other sort of exam which was designed to identify students who were good in science, basic science. And it was modeled after the Science Talent Scholarship in the US, which used to, for a long time was called the Westinghouse and then became Intel. Now it's something else, I forget who's sponsoring it. But, um, uh, but I took that and I got that scholarship. And one of the conditions was that you had to do basic science. You couldn't do engineering or medicine. And so that's Which why must have been a bit of a disappointment to your dad, because he, he, yes, he wanted to do medicine. Yes, he wanted me to be a doctor, but I made a deal with him that if I got the scholarship, I would do uh, an undergraduate degree in physics, and if I didn't get it, I would go into medical school, you know, our local medical school. And uh, he, he said, fine. And somewhat to his mixed feelings, I, I got the scholarship. <laughs> So there you are, age 19, um, you disappear off to the US, but again, it's not a great school, it's not a top no. school that you go to. Yeah, so, so that was also a, a weird thing, which was, you know, first of all, I, I graduated from university when I was 19, and I wanted to go off to 
the US because my parents were spending a summer there on, on a short sabbatical. My, my dad was on a short sabbatical. And um, I, I hadn't taken the GRE, so most of the top schools wouldn't accept me. Uh, but this one place, Ohio University, said, you know, sure, we'll give you a, a fellowship. And of course, I hadn't heard of it. And my father said, um, you know, I think quite erroneously, he said, well, you know, you can go anywhere, and if you work hard, you'll be fine, you know. And that was his attitude. And he still thinks, you know, he's 92 years old, and he, he thinks he was a prophet, you know. <laughs> but, but actually, and... I, I think it was completely the wrong thing, because, you know, when you go to the school, uh, a graduate school, any place, it's, it's all your peer group that, that sort of drive you on and motivate you and so on. So it's very important to go to the best place you can, you can get into. And it has to be said that you didn't probably work quite as hard as you could have done at that stage. No, I, th I think part of the problem is the first two years in, in physics graduate school are coursework and then you take these exams. And I took these exams and I, that's when I realized uh, I wasn't really cut out to be a physicist because they, as you know, they asked me, uh, so what are you interested in? And I couldn't really tell them. And, and then they said, well, have you read anything interesting at all you know, in the last few months? And I had to sort of really think hard to, and then you know, come up with this lame uh, topic that I'd seen on the cover of a magazine. And so I realized, <laughs> you know, I realized actually, maybe I wasn't so interested in physics. And I, I often say, so I, I had all these other interests. I, you know, became a chess player and, you know, hopped freight trains, which is illegal, but there you are, so. See, all these things you're learning about this <laughs> splendid gentleman, hopped freight trains, just remember that. <laughs> so, anyway. Essential prerequisites of a Nobel Prize, hopped freight trains. So, so I, I often say, you know, if I had graduate students like me, I would just fire them, you know, because, you know, <laughs> And you also got married. I mean, you, you yes, know, you're I a very young man and you, and you married and, you, um, and Vera had a, a, a child already then, so yes. there you were. 23 years old, I was married with a six-year-old stepdaughter and, uh, you know, a, small, a baby, you know, it was about six weeks old, and I was off to start my second career. And why did you choose biology? So when I, um, when I was in physics and I was disillusioned with a mixture of my problem and possibly my own aptitude for it. Uh, I used to read Scientific American, and I, I would see all these fascinating articles in biology, and it seemed as though biology was at the stage that physics had been in the early 20th century with quantum mechanics and relativity and uh, atomic structure and so on. So uh, I thought, you know, this would be really fascinating. And then I also knew that lots of physicists like Francis Crick or Max Delbruck or Max Perutz, who founded the LMB where I work. Um, all of these people had made that sort of transition. And so I decided maybe this would be worth doing. And luckily Vera, you know, was game to sort of uh, humor me in going back to graduate school and living on a very modest graduate student stipend with two children in Cal Southern California without a car. So I think, um, you know, having a supportive spouse was really quite important for it. And we're going to hear quite a lot more about uh, Vera's support uh, for you over the years and how crucial that was. So there you were. You, you know, you'd, you'd come out of physics. You'd only done uh, two years in, uh, in biology. 
Um, and you decide that you're going to work on ribosomes. And tell us then what was known about the ribosome at that particular time. Yeah, so when I went to graduate school in biology again, first of all, most places wouldn't accept me because I already had a PhD. But a few places did, and University of California, San Diego, I thought was, had the best combination of quality and a place where I could have two young children. And uh, so I went there, and uh, I started learning about DNA and genes and, you know, and realized that actually DNA coded for proteins, uh, all of these things that we call genes are actually bits of information uh, that can, you know, allow you to make proteins. Uh, but the way that it's made is that, you know, if you think of DNA as this archive of our genes, uh, you know, just as if you go to the British Library, they're not going to let you take out their valuable books. You know, they're going to give you, make, you, make a photocopy or a microfilm of it, and then you work with the copy. And so the cell does the same thing. It has this archive tucked away in the nucleus, which contains all its genes. And then as it needs particular genes, it makes a copy of it called messenger RNA. And that goes, that's exported from the nucleus out into the cytoplasm, the rest of the cell. And then this very large molecule, and you know, large and small are relative, so it's, it's tiny by human standards. You know, if you take the width of a human hair, you could line up 20,000 of these molecules along the width of a human hair. So it's very small by our standards, but by molecular standards, it's enormous, has a million atoms. And so, uh, you know, it's called the ribosome. And it's this very ancient machine. And it's, what it does is it reads the messenger RNA, which is essentially like a sentence in a four-letter alphabet, which is the four types of bases that DNA and RNA have. And using that, reading that sentence and reading three letters at a time, it stitches together a different kind of chain, which is the protein chain. So it has this long, the protein chain is this long, a chain of amino acids, and there are 20 types of them. And each gene has a different order of these 20 amino acids. So you can, you can think of you know, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of individual beads with different you know, beads in different orders. And the, mir the miracle is, you take this long chain, and in this very theater in 1968, David Phillips showed the structure of lysozyme, which is the third protein to be solved, which is right here. Now, we just happened to have one we made earlier. When he, when he showed what this chain would look like if it was extended, it came down from the ceiling to the floor, okay? And how does it know how to fold up into the shape? Well, it's the order of the amino acids in the chain that miraculously contains the information to allow the chain to fold up into its shape. And it's that folded shape that gives each protein its special function. Because it's the shape of the protein, the structure of it, that allows it to work. And so we have all sorts of proteins. Where you have a protein in your eye that allows you to see, uh, called rhodopsin. You have another protein called hemoglobin, which allows you to carry oxygen from your lungs in, in through your blood. You have a long filamentous protein called collagen, which makes up your skin and connective tissues. You have uh, Greg Winter got the Nobel Prize this year for 
uh, you know, work on antibodies. Well, antibodies are also proteins, and they help fight off infections. So we can hear because of proteins in our ears. We can sense touch because of proteins in our nerves and so on. So proteins carry out thousands of functions. Every one of them is made by the ribosome using reading instructions in the gene for that protein. So you've got this factory, the ribosome, and information comes in and product goes out exactly. and something goes on yeah. in it. And in the 1970s, that was pretty much it. That was what you knew at, yes. at the time. I, I would say a bit was known in the sense the players that came into the ribosome and brought in the amino acids were these small adapter molecules. That was known. It was known that it read them in blocks of three at a time. And it was known that other proteins would have to come into the ribosome at different points and help it do something and go on to the next step. But the, the problem was they couldn't see any of this. They didn't know anything about what these molecules looked like. And so it was a bit of a black box. And I say in the book, you know, imagine if you were a Martian and you hovered over the Earth and you saw these little objects move around in straight lines. And then if you look closely, you'd see there were even smaller objects that would enter these objects. And the object would only move when there are these small objects inside the bigger object. And when the little objects got out, the, the object would stop. And uh, you wouldn't know anything about it. And then you'd get closer and you'd say, oh, it emits carbon dioxide and water and it uses up gasoline. So you'd get a little bit of an idea of this thing. But unless you actually looked at the thing and saw it had an engine and a steering wheel and you know, a crankshaft and so on, you would have no idea how it worked. And it was the same with the ribosome. It was just this sort of black box that seemed to miraculously do this thing. And you knew that structure was essential to function. So yeah. unless you knew its structure, yeah. you wouldn't be able to work out yeah. and its that's function. That's been a theme, you know, the idea of, that you have to see something to, to understand it. That's been a theme for hundreds of years. So, you know, you know when Galileo could see, you know, moons of Jupiter and so on and, and planets, and that gave a huge impetus to the, so, you know, understanding the solar system, the heliocentric theory. And um, later on, when Robert Hooke was able to see, or Van Leeuwenhoek, were able to actually see microbes and cells, you know, we got the idea that all life consists of units f formed from cells. So in every case, seeing the next level of detail has transformed, you know, the field. And, uh, you know, a classic example of molecular structures, the double helix of DNA, you know, before that, we had no idea how heredity could be transmitted and how, you know, information could, molecules could even carry information. As soon as you saw the double helix structure, suddenly, you know, you had, for the first time in centuries, I mean, people have been wondering for centuries, you know, how, do we, how come, you know, children are like their parents and how come we don't give birth to sheep, you know, or <laughs> things like that. And so, you know, I think for the first time, those sorts of things became clear. And it was the same with the other molecules. So let's park the ribosome for a moment. It's this black box and go back to Venki. And the thing that really changed your life was reading an article in the Scientific American about neutron scattering. Yeah, I'm afraid not at all a useful technique in, in biology, although some people who use it, do it for a living will probably be outraged, but anyway. Um, but um, 
You know, it was on the ribosome, and there were two things that drew me to the article. One was, one of the authors was Don Engelman. He was one of two people at Yale who had offered me a postdoctoral fellowship straight out of my PhD in physics. And I turned him down saying, I don't know any biology, and I need to learn some biology before I could do that sort of thing. And uh, the other was, I knew the ribosome was important. And then the third thing was that I thought, well, neutron scattering, I have a background in physics, so I can probably you know, pick that up, and so maybe I'll be useful to them. And uh, so I wrote to Don, and I said, you know, you offered me a job two years ago when I didn't know anything, and now I actually know some biology, so maybe you'll want me even more. And uh, so he put me in touch with his collaborator, Peter Moore, who was really the ribosome expert. And uh, that's how I ended up going to Yale to work on the ribosome. So at this time, really nobody was interested much in ribosomes. It was a kind of niche uh, interest. And let's be fair, that technique didn't really work. And no. it was suggested in the nicest possible way that it was time to move on. And yes. so I must just quote you this from your book, because I just think it's a wonderful phrase. So the, so the universities looked at my career, a bachelor's and doctorate in physics, neither of which were from a prestigious university, two years studying biology without a degree, followed by a research using a technique no one had heard of to work on an old problem that was already unfashionable. It wasn't looking good, Venki, was it? No, I actually, you know, so when I applied, so, the, the, so until then, it was a sort of natural progression, except for this little deviation into biology. You know, you do a PhD, you do a postdoc. That's all pretty natural, except that I'd done a detour and switched fields, uh, you know, by switching from physics to biology. But anyway, after postdoc is when scientists face the big crunch. It's at that point, they, they, they either have to get a faculty job or they have to get a different type of job or they have to do something else. You know? And uh, I applied for 50 uh, positions you know, and I applied to everything from four-year colleges. So America has very good four-year colleges. These are undergraduate teaching institutions which don't do a lot of research. And um, as, as well as sort of mediocre universities and a few top universities. And out of those 50 applications, I got exactly zero interviews uh, because of this. I bet and it's so, a bit like the man who turned down the Beatles, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, but I, you know, I say in the book that you know, the four-year colleges uh, who are interested mostly in teaching, they, they probably looked at my long Indian name and you know, they realized I'd, you know, they knew I, I had grown up in India. They probably thought, we don't even know if this guy can speak English, you know, let alone teach. You know, and then, uh, so they didn't want me. And then uh, the research, top research universities probably, you know, they looked at my rather checkered CV and they said, well, you know, this, this is some outlier and not worth considering. I, I don't blame them, actually. I mean, I probably, if I'd been on the selection committee, I'd have done the same thing. And then you went to Oak Ridge, which was a bit disastrous, wasn't it? And then I did. There was 15 months, you know, I went there, you know, by advisor, one of my, Don Engelman, had called up this fellow who was a physicist who was running a neutron scattering facility in Oak Ridge. And they wanted a biologist to sort of help with the attract people. So I, in, in effect, I was a neutron salesman, if you like, you know, attract biologists to come and use this instrument. So I said, I'm happy to do that if, as long as I can do my own work. 
And uh, they said, yes, we'll set you all up with a lab. And then the lab never materialized. So I had to, 15 months, you know, well, three months after I got there, I was looking for a job again. So, so the first decade of your career as a scientist was not looking promising. No, it, it was terrible because I'd, I'd gone, you know, I'd started off in physics. And then I'd sort of, you know, there's an American term called punting, which is different from the Oxford and Cambridge punting. It means, you know, when you know you can't score with your football, you use, use your free kick and give up the ball to the other team, you know. But it means sort of starting over, basically. So I had to start over in biology. So it was effectively my second career. And now I found my second career wasn't working out either, you know. So I was just, you know, how many lives did I have was, was the question. <laughs> <laughs> so let's again park that. So Venki at this point is, it's not looking good, ladies and gentlemen. It really isn't. Uh, circling, circling the plug hole is, I think, what the Americans call it. So let's turn to how, uh, to crystals and that basic techniques which were around at the time for looking at both, well, at DNA people are very familiar with uh, yeah. the story of uh, Rosalind Franklin and the, the crystallography. Yeah. Just tell us why you need to have crystals in order to work out the structure of a molecule. Right. So, so normally, you know, if you want to look at something very small, you would look at it with a magnifying glass, or if you wanted to look at it in even more detail, you'd use a microscope, which is really a series of magnifying glass lenses. And uh, the way that works is that light is scattered from the object. And what the lens does is it collects the rays that are scattered and combines them into an image. And in fact, all of you are doing this right now uh, while you're looking at us, because there are lenses in your eyes which are taking the scattered rays from Vivian or me and then recombining them to an image in your eye. And that's how you see. And with a lens, you can make the image much bigger than the object itself. And so then you can look at the magnified image and see details. But the problem is that uh, if you want to look at molecules, the distance between atoms in a molecule is far too small to, to use light. Because there's an old theorem in physics that you can't see, distinguish objects that are further apart than half the wavelength of the light you're using. And light has many thousands of times longer wavelength than the distance between atoms. So you would need a much shorter uh, wavelength radiation. So if you take light and you use light of the kind of wavelength that corresponds to the distance between atoms, well, that is what we call X-rays. So X-rays and ordinary light are both the same thing. They just differ in energy and, and wavelength. But the trouble is there's no lens for X-rays. And even if there were, X-rays are unlike ordinary light. It's actually damaging. So by the time you were able to you know, use X-rays to magnify one single molecule, you would fry the molecule. You would destroy it before you could even see it. So the way around that was invented by Lawrence Bragg while he was a PhD student. And he was actually, I believe he was the director of the Royal Institution. Uh, in the 60s. Anyway, he um, figured out that if you hit a beam of X-rays to a crystal, which is essentially a three-dimensional stack of molecules, then you could take the scattered rays and you could computationally 
do what a lens does. So if, in effect, you do calculations, you'd measure the intensities of the scattered rays and do what a lens does, but you would do it in a computer instead. And you could then, in a computer, calculate a three-dimensional image. And that's how uh, crystallography began. And it started off with a very small molecule, sodium chloride, common salt, which has only two atoms. That's what Lawrence Bragg started with. And then it became, uh, you know, it went to bigger molecules. And Dorothy Hodgkin was a big exponent of it. And she worked on molecules which had a few hundred atoms, uh, like vitamin B12. At the time, it was a tour de force and uh, got her a Nobel Prize. And also a, a headline in the Daily Mail which said, Oxford housewife wins Nobel. Yes. Uh, uh, an Oxford housewife and mother of three. Mother of three, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's, I quote that in the book, actually. So, so um, and then, but then, you know, if you get to proteins, proteins have a few thousand atoms instead of, um, you know, a few hundred atoms. The techniques of Dorothy Hodgkin wouldn't be useful. And uh, Max Perutz, who was uh, in Cambridge, was working on this problem. He worked on it for 23 years before he made his breakthrough. And he and his former student, John Kendrew, but then his collaborator, worked on the first two protein structures which were hemoglobin and myoglobin. And they won the Nobel Prize in 1962. And they'd figured out techniques to solve these lar much larger molecules. And the third protein structure was done here at the Royal Institution by David Phillips, and that's lysozyme. And that was about six years after uh, Kendrew and Perutz won the Nobel Prize for the first two. And but you're making it sound a bit easy. And it's, uh, it, it's... It wasn't easy because, you know... <laughs> because the, yeah, so the, the first protein themselves. structures took about 23 years, you know, because you had to figure out all the methods and even how to collect data. And, you know, it, it, they were also a bit lucky in that digital computers were invented right around the time when they needed it. And, you know, Kendrew, who get, doesn't get a lot of credit, I mean, he's under, one of the more under-recognized people. He, he also started EMBL, by the way, which is one of the big European labs. Anyway, he realized that you needed to use digital computers. And they, they in Cambridge, there was this huge computer called EDSAC, you know, which would take up almost, you know, as much as this room, practically. And uh, they would have to go there to do all their calculations. Of course, now, you know, I have many millions more uh, orders of magnitude more computing power in my pocket, as, as do most of you. But um, that, that helped, you know, and th this goes back to this technology, you know, driving science. And, and then it took another six years to do uh, the third protein structure. And, and for a long time, protein structures would take, uh, you know, typically five to ten years for each one to do, but then the pace accelerated. And the other thing that you, that you had to do, which is crystals of pesky things. That's uh, right. I mean, really pesky things. Yeah, I mean, so, it, you might think it's easy if you've yeah. left a bit of salt out and it's uh, salty water and it sort of crystallizes, but actually getting crystals is a huge step. It's really difficult. It's a, it's a difficult step because what you're trying to do is you're coaxing molecules to form these very regular three dimensional arrays. Now, if you have spheres, you know, regular spheres like marbles of the same size, you can easily stack them up, okay? 
But if you have some, say, floppy teddy bears or something, you know, it's much, much harder to make a very regular stack. They'll all be slightly different. They won't line up very precisely. And so you can think of proteins as sort of floppy. You know, this looks rigid, but it's actually in water. It's in solution. And it's actually kind of slightly floppy. And, you know, to get this sort of, this has a few thousand atoms, to get it to uh, line up in crystals, very, very difficult. And the idea that a ribosome, which is a million atoms, so imagine this is a few thousand atoms, that's a million atoms, so it's actually you know, many times bigger than this lysozyme. To get that to crystallize was not thought to be really straightforward at all. But Ada Jonas, had, who was a, a, a scientist who was at the time, I think, in Berlin, yes. had managed to get a crystal. That's right. So Ada Jonat went to work with Heinz Gunther Wittmann, who ran a big department, almost like an institute in Berlin. He was a Max Planck director. And he was interested in all things ribosomal. And he actually had tried to get a couple of people to give this problem a go, which is to try and crystallize the whole ribosome. And uh, one of them turned out to be a bit of a charlatan. And the other... Uh, and he left, and the other uh, guy wanted to come to work on it, but uh, because his girlfriend was German, so he wanted to spend time in Germany. And, and his girlfriend, at some point, dumped him, so he, he didn't want to go anymore. But he had this, so Wittmann had this fellowship. So when Ada Jonat wrote to him, he already had a fellowship lined up, so he simply transferred it to her. She came to Berlin, and the first year she was working on something else. And then, as she narrates it, she was in a had a bicycle accident or something, and she was hospitalized for a while. And while she was there, she was thinking, well, maybe I, you know, I should uh, give whole ribosomes a shot because you know, the Institute is making lots and lots of these ribosomes from different species. And uh, so, so when she told Wittmann, he was naturally delighted because it had been on his mind. And he didn't think anybody would be willing to sort of take on the project because it seemed so impossible. But she, to her credit, uh, not only took it on, but stuck with it for quite a long time. So the ribosome um, is it's composed of a, a big bit, a little bit, and some proteins. Yes, so if you look up there, you see that there's a, there's a bottom part in yellow and a top part in sort of light blue. And so the top part is what's called the large subunit, and the bottom part is the small subunit. They're not very, um, <laughs> they, they don't have much originality, scientists, the big bit, the little bit. Anyway, <laughs> so the big bit and the little bit, uh, and they're going to feature largely in our story to come. So we've got, Adayonat has got some crystals. You now decide that you're going to go to the laboratory of molecular biology in yeah. uh, Cambridge, and you're going to do a sabbatical for a year. So poor Vera gets dragged across. Oh, no, 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 not, not, I wouldn't say poor Vera for that. You know, Vera is an extreme <laughs> Anglophile. You know? I call her the English woman from Ohio. So, <laughs> so, you know, so I, I don't think that was a, any sort of imposition at all. In fact, she had spent uh, a summer in Durham when she was 17 and had been in love with England ever since. So, oh, so, so she, was, she was willing on that occasion? She was, no, she was always willing to go to England, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you come to the LMB. Now, the LMB 
plays a big part in this story. And the LMB is, is a very special place. The LMB is, a, as probably some of you will know, Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge, which was used to, well, it's still on right next to Addenbrooke's Hospital. And it's an extraordinary place that has an extraordinary record. It has more Nobel Prize winners amongst its alumni than most developed countries. It's absolutely astonishing. How many is it now? Well, the, the lab itself won its, had its 16th Nobel laureate, 12th Nobel Prize, because some of them were shared, and uh, last this year with Greg Winter. But it also won the Nobel Prize last year with Richard Henderson. And two in a row for a relatively small institutions, uh, you Doing know, unheard it. of. Yes. And, so, uh, why, so tell me why, Venki, it's yeah. so extraordinary. I think, the, I think the reason is uh, several fold. First of all, Max Perutz, who founded it, uh, had this vision of really a lab where you would have stable funding, where people would be very collegial and non-hierarchical, and they would work in small groups. And this has several effects. One is, if you have stable funding, you, you can afford to tackle very large difficult problems because they're not going to pull the funding out from you uh, if things aren't working right away. So it allows you the ability to tackle hard problems. The collegiality, if you have high-level colleagues, gives you critical feedback. Because when you're tackling a hard problem, you sometimes don't know whether you're just wasting your time or whether you're actually sort of making progress and you, know, you need to maybe try a different technique and so on. And so you, if you have very critical colleagues, you know, that forces you to uh, you know, keep, keep sort of focused on the, on the problem. Having small groups is also very important. If you have a huge group, the reality is most scientists you know, don't have uh, more than one or two good ideas. Okay? And you know, if you have a large group, what you end up doing is having a lot of your second-rate ideas distributed among your group. And then they all need papers, and that takes away your time. You have to you know, nurture them, you have to see them through, etc. So all these bad or secondary ideas are, are distracting you from the one or two things you really want to do, okay? So by forcing you to have small groups, it's forcing you to focus on the things that are most important in your field and not waste your time on, on you know, sort of these derivative problems. I think so all of these are important, and the collegiality, the fact that there's no hierarchy we don't have a senior common room and a junior common. You know, we have a canteen where everybody, from you know the lab director to the first-year graduate student, or or you know the cleaners or electricians or whoever, you know, they all sit together. And so there's this feeling that we're all in this together. You know, everybody feels invested. Uh, you know, and, and so the result is we get ter terrific support from you know the machine shop, uh, the you know people in the workshop or the you know electronics people and so on. And, and because everyone feels it's part of, you know, this, this grand effort. So it's essentially curiosity-driven research. And you're it, not driven so much by yeah. the need to publish papers, which is right. often the driving force yeah. in I mean, uh, Fred science. Sanger, you know, who won two Nobel Prizes, uh, you know, he has about 40 papers. And, you know, today, if you just counted his papers and what is called a H index, he wouldn't even get tenure, you know, at a, at a you know, middle-level 
a university. So it just shows you those criteria are not, not that useful in terms of you know, actual science. But I have to tell you, it's, 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 a, it's not actually a paradox, but, but this curiosity-driven work at the LMB has generated billions for the, for the British economy, well, Greg including you know, Greg Winter's monoclonal antibodies, which is the basis of you know, six of the top ten selling drugs are a result of Greg Winter's technology. Yeah, so Humira, the Medical Research Council, uh, was, had an enormous amount of funding every year, which yeah. came directly from the Humira yeah. In fact, you know, our new you... building, you know, the amount of money Greg raised for the MRC was many times the cost of our new building, which cost about 200 million pounds. And uh, so I often joke, it should be called the Winter Palace. <laughs> Okay, so we've got you at the uh, LMB, um, and uh, you decide that you're going to go for the little unit. Yeah, so, you know, Ada Yonat had crystallized the large subunit, and over the years she had made the large subunit quality good so that the molecules were all very precisely lined up so you could get an atomic structure. But a Russian group had done the same thing for the small subunit as well as the entire ribosome. But the quality of these crystals were not that great. So even if you were able to solve it, you'd only get a fuzzy image of the ribosome. You wouldn't be able to determine an atomic structure. And so I thought, well, you know, people in Berlin have this, these great crystals of the large subunit. And, you know, so maybe I should work on the small subunit. And one reason I had that, I wanted to do that was, first of all, you know, I, I realized I wasn't getting anywhere by looking at little pieces of the ribosome. and that They weren't going to tell you how the ribosome works unless you were able to look at a much bigger thing, like an entire subunit, or preferably the whole thing. And so I thought, well, May, how, how would you even go about doing it? And it turned out I got an idea almost randomly as a result of a conversation that had to do with a very specialized technique in crystallography that uses these very intense sources of x-rays called synchrotrons, where you can choose the wavelength of the x-rays very precisely. Anyway, I've described it in my book, but it gave me an idea that you could even, using this technique, tackle very, very large molecules like the ribosome. So I thought, well, I could do that, but I don't want to go head-to-head -head with Ada on the 50S subunit, even though it appeared that work had, been, had sort of stalled because those crystals had been around for quite a long time and there no structure emerging. And I didn't want to go head to head with her. So I thought, well, rather I'll pick this small subunit, see if I can improve those crystals, and then I can try my idea on those improved crystals. But actually that's a very important point in science, isn't it? Because some people, they choose the wrong thing. I mean, it's, there is some luck. I mean, yes, you were determined you would do that, but there is some luck about uh, choosing the right thing. Being in the right place at the right time is a very important point in yeah. science. And I think if I hadn't done my sabbatical at the LMB for a year, uh, I don't think I would have ever had this idea. I, if I'd gone somewhere else to learn crystallography, you know, I might have learned, become a competent crystallographer and done some, you know, pretty good work. 
But I don't think I would have had this, this idea of, first of all, it's a cultural thing too. After going to the LMB, I thought, why am I wasting my time doing these little you know, bits and pieces of science? I should be tackling the most important question in my field. So there was that cultural motivation, you know, after having seen how people worked at the LMB. And then the other thing was this random conversation with a friend of mine, Phil Evans, who actually was simply conveying a message from Eleanor Dodson, who was a a well-known crystallographer at York. She and her husband were both, you know, Dorothy Hodgkin's uh, protégés. Uh, and anyway, uh, so because of this tip from Eleanor, I tried this technique, and then gradually I realized it worked so well that maybe it could be used for very large objects. So now you go back from LNB, you go back to America, and this is the time you, you're now Brookhaven or you've gone to Utah? I, I, I was at Brookhaven, but when I went back to Brookhaven, the trouble is the administration at Brookhaven, had, it was run by a Department of Energy, and they're, they're a bunch of ex-physicists turned bureaucrats, and they really didn't have a good feel of how life sciences actually work. And uh, they were really starving our department of fresh blood. And, and I thought I, the department was stagnating. There were very good people there. But I just didn't see that this was a place uh, that was going to be exciting in the future. So you're off to Utah then? So I went off to Utah. I almost took a job at Edinburgh. I don't say that in the book. But, but my son was just going to university at the time. And uh, you know, British, according to British immigration laws, because he was 18, he was no longer my dependent. Obviously, they hadn't talked to my bank. <laughs> anyway, so they wouldn't give him a visa. And anyway, he had already been accepted at Harvard, so he didn't really want to give that up. So I didn't feel like abandoning him at that stage and going off to a different country. And uh, that was one reason. But I, but I also felt Utah had some very good people uh, working on RNA biology and had absolutely superb colleagues. And, uh, you know, I was very happy to go there, actually. Now, by this time, you think that you're on your own doing your small uh, unit, but suddenly you realize that there is intense competition. Yeah. And that you are one of four teams. And you say in your book, um, I had a near obsessive focus on the 30S structure. And I wonder, is obsession essential? I think when... I, it can go in phrases. In phases. There, there are times when you need to be relaxed and very open to new ideas and, and, you know, uh, and, and allow sort of the world to sort of sink into you. Uh, but there are other times when you've already decided this is what you're doing and you just have to come to grips with the problem and really obsess about it. And by obsessing, I don't mean you have to work on it 24 hours a day. If you do that, you'll just wear yourself out and you won't get anywhere. Uh, you have to take time off. You know, sometimes, actually, you get your ideas when you're away from the problem, you know, going for a run or going to a concert or something. But you do, but you do have to constantly mull over it and, and, and be obsessive. So you, there you are obsessing, uh, but it almost, almost fell apart. Tell them the story of the guillotine. Oh, that's right. So, you know, you haven't, you haven't mentioned that I actually left Utah and went off to the LMB. Oh, again. yes. But I was, yes, you, but you Utah. Know, so, so, so what happened was, you know, when I started working on the 30S, I decided to work on the 30S, I, I went to a conference and I realized that Tom Stites, who unfortunately died uh, about a week ago, 
had started to work on the 50S, you know, going head to head with Ada, using Ada's crystals as a starting point, because you know they had sort of figured that well, some other people needed to get into the act, and uh, so I thought that's fine. They, those can, people can duke it out, and I wanted to work on the 30S, but then I got nervous. I thought, you know. You know, Ada Yonat had been doing it for 15 years, and I thought, well, you know, what, what if I'm doing it for three or four years and get nowhere, and then, because it's a tough problem, and then my grant runs out, and then they won't renew it. So I wrote to Richard Henderson, who was the director at the time, and I said, you know, how about giving me a job at the LMB to come and work on the ribosome? And of course, most places would sort of laugh at you, but you know, the LMB being what it is, he, he had me over, uh, on, my, on a visit to Sweden, uh, on the way to Sweden. And uh, he, uh, he you know, talked it over and then they gave me a job at the end of it. And I went to Sweden and I realized that Ada, Ada had then shifted her attention from the 50S to the 30S because she sort of ceded the ground to Tom Stites and, and, and their colleagues. And so I, I had been trying to avoid this race and then found myself you know, in this sort of head-to-head -head race with Ada quite unintendedly. And then I went off to the LMB and you know, there was this furious year when we you know, all trying to pull out the stops to get this uh, structure. And our crystals were not like each other. Each crystal was slightly different. And we thought that maybe the reason was the way we were freezing them. Because to freeze them, you have to look under a microscope and with a tiny loop, fish out these crystals, and then plunge them into liquid nitrogen. And if you plunge them in slightly different ways, maybe you know the crystals freeze slightly differently and they end up being somewhat different. I told you these crystals were pesky. So, so you know, a friend of mine said, well, you know, we have this device which is like a guillotine. And what you do is you fish out your crystal, you stick it onto the guillotine, and then you press a pedal, and the guillotine drops down into the liquid nitrogen. So every crystal will drop down exactly the same rate and in exactly the same direction. And uh, so I had this very enthusiastic uh, graduate student, uh, Bill Clemens, and uh, he would, you know, sit in the cold room. This all had to be done at four degrees C. So he would put on his winter jacket and uh, you know, set up a stereo and put on Johnny Cash. And then he would put, freeze you know, hundreds of these crystals. And actually, if you want to hear what he said, this is a little self-advertising, you can hear it on Desert Island Discs this Sunday. <laughs> okay. But anyway, so he uh, would, would plunge all these crystals one after the other. Which he'd laboriously made. Yeah, and these crystals, you have to realize, took about eight to 10 weeks to grow after about 10 days of preparative work. So about, say, nine to 10 weeks overall. So he took about 200 of these crystals and stuck them on the guillotine. And he didn't try one or two to see if the thing would work. And I didn't think to you know, tell him, you know, why don't you try one or two. We all took it for granted. I think it was a failure of communication. We all took it for granted that this was a very standard device, et cetera. It turned out the device had never been used for crystals. It was an EM for electron microscopy. And you know, this friend had just been trying to be helpful, saying, well, maybe you could try this. You know? But he, you know, so no one in, had tried it. So in this desperate race in which every second right. counts, so, you so just took 200 destroyed crystals. 200 of your yeah, best so crystals. So what happened is the guillotine 
would plunge down into the liquid nitrogen and stop with a thud. And in that thud, the crystal would shoot out of the loop and disappear into this sort of vat of liquid nitrogen. And so, you know, when they took it to the synchrotron, all he had were like 200 empty loops, except for one loop which had a crystal sticking out of it. And I sort of, in a slightly lewd way, say that it looked as if it was giving Bill the finger. You know, <laughs> so this is a you know, thoroughgoing disaster that's Terrible. That's you know, it's like six, it was, we probably lost about two months in a very tight race. So you're by this time in, at the LMB in Cambridge, but actually some of the rest of your team are back in Utah. So you are working, You've, you have this kind of shift system. Yeah, that's at the beginning, that's before the guillotine. Mm -hmm. So when, when I first moved to the LMB, we had collected some data to low resolution on the, on the ribosome just to see if the, whole, if the strategy would work. And I had come in, I'd come to the LMB with Vera, and I would do all the computing at the LMB. And then at the end of the day, I would give the results. I would you know, send the results electronically to Utah. But they were seven, seven hours behind. And so they still had most of their day left. And so, uh, we were effectively working round the clock, you know, for, for, for those uh, two or three months. And really, actually, instead of slowing us down, it probably sped us up a bit. So then you take your crystals to the Argonne um, in, near Chicago, um, yeah. which is a, a, a beam there. And just tell us about that, because I think this is the moment when this story moves into Nobel Prize territory. Yeah, so... The, the whole thing was that it, the, the whole technique depends on whether you can see certain special atoms which have different scattering properties for X-rays. And those are the sort of magic signal that allows you to calculate the structure, the signal from those atoms. So you, you take your crystals to these synchrotrons and you do an experiment which exploits the special scattering of these atoms. And then you do a calculation to see, can you see the signal from these atoms? And so when you go to a synchrotron, they give you 48 hours. And I have to tell you, they gave us 48 hours six months after I had asked them for it. You know, so they could have given it to me any time. And by this time, they'd given my competitors quite a lot of time. So that was sort of annoying. But anyway, we had 48 hours at the end of March. And if, the, if, we didn't, if that didn't work, then effectively we would have lost the first round, you know, so we would be Johnny-come-latelys, if you like. And so at the end of this 48 hours where we worked round the clock in shifts, we did this calculation to look for the signal from these atoms, and it just spat out the, the, the results, and it didn't look like there was anything there. And I thought, oh my God, something has gone terribly wrong. We must have chosen the wrong wavelength or, you know, whatever it is. It hasn't worked, and you know, uh, we've basically lost this thing, and we're going to have to just you know regroup and do something else, or or, or do follow-up experiments. And then I realized there was some mistake in the code that we had fed the computer, and I realized actually it needed to be rerun with the correct uh, code. And when we reran it, it spat out these results, and I could see you know dozens and dozens of peaks, really strong peaks from these special atoms. And I knew then that we'd cracked the problem. And in fact, you say out in the book that you got up and you started dancing around the room saying, we're going to be famous. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you have all the stress of months and months of stress, and then you have 48 hours of exhausting, uh, you know, data collection, and suddenly there's, there's just this burst of relief, you know, that the whole thing has worked and it's going to be okay. And part of the reason also is, you know, you, when you go to a new institution, you know, you tell people like Richard Henderson, I'm going to come here and, you know, give the ribosome a go. You don't want to sort of be a failure, you know, and uh, be an also-ran. And so, uh, you know, it's just a co combination of all of that. Uh, it just sort of, there's a sudden release, you know, and... But, so there's this intense competition. And actually, people think of science as being about collaboration. I mean, you think about huge teams, you think about... Uh, yeah. And science is always a team effort in it, that you build on the, on the uh, work of uh, others. But actually, there's also a fiercely competitive Science streak. has always been fiercely competitive. I mean, you look at Newton and Leibniz, or, you know, or actually... Uh, there's a very famous example with Golgi and Ramoni Cajal, who shared the Nobel Prize, and Golgi spent his entire Nobel lecture completely trashing Ramoni Cajal, <laughs> although Ramoni Cajal turned out to be right, actually, you know. But anyway, so science has always been like that. It's, it's just, you know, science is done by humans. Humans want to be recognized, they want to be famous, they want credit for their work, and so on. Now, of course, you know, if you want to work on the Higgs boson, nobody's going to give you your own CERN, you know, to work on. So you have to collaborate. Or if you want to work on the Human Genome Project, you have to collaborate. Uh, and that's how a lot of science works. But you could argue that, that some of, by that time, it's more of an engineering effort, you know. But when you have, if you have a very good idea, you're not going to suddenly say, oh, well, I have this great idea and let's all share it. You're going to want to use that idea to show it works. So that, you know, people say, yes, you know, this guy, you know, had this great idea. So I think that drives the thing. And if you look at the ribosome, I mean, to be very blunt about it, while it was being done by just one group for 15 years, you know, not a lot uh, happened beyond, the, you know, getting the crystals, you know. It didn't progress towards the structure, although it could have at, at many different points. And uh, suddenly, you know, you have four groups working on it, and, you know, the whole field explodes and, you know, things just take off. And it's because when you have competition, you're just forced to work harder, but also to think harder. And, you know, and, and it's the same, actually, in the marketplace. You know, it weeds out bad ideas and, it, you know, uh, just creates better products, I would say. Yeah. And things really began to get a bit tricky at this point. There was a lot of rather ill-tempered bickering between these uh, There these is, groups. and I think, you know, that's, I, that's a slightly unfortunate... So, I, so I, I say in the book, collaboration is very good for science, but it's not so great for scientists, because it's very stressful, uh, you know, you have all this rivalry and animosities and you know, so on. But, um, but I and think... And not helped by the fact that now we are in Nobel Prize territory, and there can only be three prizes. Yes, so that's so I talk quite a bit about prizes. I, I, I can do this now, but I've never liked prizes, actually, you know. And, but if I'd said that before, people would say, oh, well, this guy doesn't have any, so he's just got sour grapes. <laughs> but, but, you know... And now I, you've I, got quite a lot. Uh, well, a few. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, but, but the thing about prizes is they apply a sports metaphor to science, you know. And, and the thing I don't like about that is... In sports, 
there's a very clear set of rules and a very clear way to measure things. So if you have a 100-meter race, the, the rules are clear, and you can measure who came first, second, and third. Okay? But in, in, or, or in a football game, you can, you can tell who scored the most goals, or, or in cricket, who scored the most runs. But in science, it's not always obvious who did the big advance? Because science is multidimensional. We all depend on different advances and you know, different aspects of the problem. And so figuring that out is not always easy. It's, it can often be subjective. And I point out in a very big field like transcription, which is how DNA gets copied into RNA to turn on certain genes and, or, or turn them off in other cases. Um, in a big field like that, uh, the Lasker Award, which is sort of the American version of the Nobel, went to one scientist. The Nobel Prize for exactly the same field went to a completely different scientist. Now, how could it be that two intelligent committees, you know, complete pick two different people and shows, uh, to some extent, you know, how subjective it is? But uh, you had been told, and I just think this is a fantastic story, you'd been told by Jim Watson, no less, not once but twice, that you were very unlikely to get the Nobel oh, Prize. Yeah. So, so quit, quit dreaming, it's, boy. It's, it's, very, it's very funny. So right after the structures were solved, I was invited to give a talk at NIH, along with Ada Yonat and Peter Moore, uh, who was part of the moore Stites duo at Yale. And on the way, I was then going off to Cold Spring Harbor to give a talk at a crystallography course that I'd actually taken as a student to learn crystallography before I went to the LMB. So, at the airport, I met Jim. I saw Jim Watson was right ahead of me uh, in the queue. So I introduced myself, and we spent the entire time on the plane uh, chatting with each other. At some point, apropos of absolutely nothing, he said, Well, you know, there's that guy in California, and there's that Yale group, and of course, there's that Israeli woman. So I don't think you shouldn't worry about it. And basically, what he was saying was, you know, you should just forget about the Nobel Prize. You're just not in the running. Okay? And I sort of laughed because, you know, I hadn't brought it up. You know, this guy was just sort of gratuitously telling me I was a loser. Okay? And, and so, so I, but, you know, Jim being Jim, we all, everyone in the molecular biology field, you know, we all admire Jim for his huge contributions to biology. But we also know what he's like. I mean, this is a guy who's, you know, he's got like some strange views about lots of things. Anyway, so um, I just sort of dismissed it. But then nine years later, fast forward nine years, about two months before the phone call from Stockholm, I was at a Cold Spring Harbor symposium on evolution because it was the 150th year of Darwin's origin of species. And I was sort of the token ribosome guy because it's, the ribosome is ancient. It goes back to how life evolved from you know, chemicals like RNA. So anyway, uh, after my, so Jim came in just for my session, okay? And uh, this RNA biologist said, do you know Jim just came in for your session and then left? And I said, no, I didn't notice that. He says, well, you must be on somebody's shortlist. And I say in the book, not on Watson's apparently, because uh, after the talk, I met him in the lobby and he started asking me about, you know, how so-and-so was doing and so-and-so was doing and so on. And then he sort of looked at me and says, you know, Look, not going to Stockholm isn't the end of the world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just, 
didn't know, I didn't know what, what to say. You know, again, it was like apropos of absolutely nothing. But it shows that Jim is slightly obsessed about the Nobel Prize. You know? and <laughs> but you'd weird. also had a blistering row with a person who was on the Nobel Committee. Oh, yeah, committee. that's another thing. I mean, you know, so so after these structures were solved, after these structures were solved, you know, it sort of went into some weird campaign mode. All, all of us were getting invited to meetings all over the world. And there were, for a few years, every year we were getting invited to at least one meeting in Sweden. And the last of these that I attended was in 2004. And there's a well-known ribosome biochemist in Sweden. Uh, and he was at this meeting. And at the banquet, he had clearly had one too many. And uh, he comes to me after the dinner and and starts haranguing me about my talk. And, and you know, he had a disagreement with our model for how uh, you know, the code on, on, on the gene is recognized, which is a very important part of my work. And he disagreed with it. And, and then he said, you know, I know why you're trying to pretend you're doing something, you've done something new. We figured all this out in the 70s. And then, so then I, I got really irritated. And I sort of gave it right back to him. And then his colleague had to drag us apart. And then uh, two, two months later, I read somewhere that he had been appointed to the Nobel Committee for Chemistry. <laughs> and, and so I thought, well, you know, that's that as far as I'm concerned. You know? And actually, it was a big relief because I was absolutely sure that I was not going to get a Nobel Prize. If the ribosome got one, they would never give it to me uh, because this guy would tell them that I was you know, completely wrong, etc. But in and 2009, you got the call, I, I which you thought the was prize, a prank and I, I didn't believe it. <laughs> I didn't believe it because of that. And I said, well, you know, if this isn't a prank and you're real, and I said to the guy, you know, you have a very good Swedish accent, but I'm not sure I believe you. <laughs> and, and, and then I said, well, if it's true, I, I want you to put Mons Ehrenberg on the line because he's on your committee and he must be there. And, and there was this huge laughter at the other end. I realized then I was on a speakerphone, you know. <laughs> And then Mons came on the line, and, he, and, and that's when I uh, sort of realized it must be true. Um, but what I love most about uh, this was that what uh, Vera said when you went home, uh, <laughs> and she said to you, I thought you had to be really clever to win one of those. <laughs> I know. So, so, I, so I quote, you know, Marion <coughs> Marian Pearson was the wife of Lester Pearson, who was a Canadian prime minister. And at some point she was asked, you know, uh, what she thought about Pearson becoming prime minister. And she said, well, you know, behind every successful man, there stands a very surprised woman. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to let you ask some questions, but I, I want to finish off this story by coming back as I said, to the star of the show, the ribosome. So, briefly, what do we now know about the ribosome because you've been able to work out the structure? So, first, there were several questions when we started. First of all, how does it recognize the code so accurately? Another is, how does it actually join up the amino acids in the other part of the ribosome? A third is, how does it actually move from one group of three to the next group of three along the genetic message? And then how does it terminate? How does it know when to stop? How does it know what the right starting point is? So in all of these, we've made tremendous progress. A completely separate issue is 
The ribosome happens to be the target of lots of antibiotics. Almost half of known antibiotics block the bacterial ribosome, but leave our ribosomes alone uh, to some extent. And, uh, and so once we had these structures, we could figure out exactly how these antibiotics block the ribosome. And that's going to help and already has led to people using these ribosome structures to try and design better compounds, which might be more effective antibiotics. Now, currently, what we're trying to do is look at ribosomes from, these were all bacterial ribosomes, but the, we're now looking at ribosomes from higher organisms and actually, like the, us. It, to interrupt slightly, the bacterial ribosomes was a very important part of this because they were not just any old bacteria, they were bacteria from extreme environments which yeah. helped you be able to use Possibly, them crystals. Possibly. That used to be the dogma <clears throat> until Jamie Kate, who was too young to be swayed by the current dogma, decided to give the, the what we call the bog standard bacterium of uh, molecular biology, which is E. coli, uh, a go, and got fantastic crystals, and therefore uh, sort of proved that this probably is a, a, a bit a of a myth. But, you know, sometimes myths are useful, because if you believe in them, they, they help you sort of keep going, you know, and, and give it a shot. Anyway, but um, those were all bacteria, but, but now we're looking at higher organisms, so the ribosomes from our own cells, and also the ribosomes from organelles within us called mitochondria, which are actually remnants of bacteria that were swallowed up by bigger cells two billion years ago and have now become their own thing. And so there are all these classes of ribosomes. And then we want to understand how ribosomes are regulated. How does a cell turn on ribosomes, turn them off? How does it know when ribosomes are stuck? And how does it then deal with these abnormal situations? So those are all things that we uh, want to work on. And you, uh, you understand them better because you have the structure. We understand, and the structures have made yeah, all sorts of experiments possible uh, that wouldn't have been without, without knowing where all the groups were on the ribosome and so on. Yeah. It's an extraordinary story. It, it really is an absolutely terrific read. I mean, it's that, it's that sense of... We've got to get there, we've yeah. got to get there. And this huge yeah. competition, it's terrific. And just but, to give you one last thing about the ribosome, it's, it's so fundamental, it's at the crossroads between genes and the proteins that are what the genes code for. And I like to say that every molecule in every cell was either made by the ribosome or were made by enzymes that were themselves made by the ribosome. So you can think of it as the mother or the grandmother of all the molecules made in the cell. Uh, so that's how important it is. And it goes back to a world that existed before DNA or proteins, you know, from this ancient RNA world. It sort of emerged from the mists. I want to take some questions from you. Anybody who'd like to? Sir. Uh, you were saying that the uh, ribosome reads the um, messenger RNA by these three letter codes. Um, when it's done that, does it read four, five, and six, or can it leave four alone and read five, six, and seven? Uh, so, so Francis Crick proved in the uh, early 60s that the code is triplet, that is three at a time, and it's not overlapping. So you would read one, two, three, and then you would read four, five, six, then you'd read seven, eight, nine, and so on. So it doesn't, 
So there's no overlap. Because there's a question, would you read one, two, three, and then would the next one would be two, three, four, for example. And it doesn't happen that way. Okay, let's take another question. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. Um, my question is, uh, if you could solve uh, any protein structure, uh, what would you choose? Ooh. Today. Today or tomorrow. Yes, we'll let you. We'll let you have the night off. It's a bit well, like going on I mean, your desert island. They didn't ask you, you know, which protein I, I you'd like to sell. I don't sell. really think of it... I, I don't think of it that way. I, I think of it as... You have to think about what is the problem... What is the question you want to solve? You know, in, in, in this case, it was, you know, how is the code translated into proteins? And in order to answer that fundamental problem, you have to solve the structure of the ribosome. So you have to ask, what is it that you're interested in? You know, if you're interested in vision, then you might want to ask, you know, how are the proteins, what are the proteins involved in vision look like, and solve those. Or if you're interested in memory, uh, then you might, you know, consider what is involved in memory, and then uh, look at the structure of those. So I think you should really think about more about the, the question and then go after the key components uh, of, of that problem. I wouldn't, otherwise you become a bit of a trophy hunter, you know, and say, oh, I want to go after this protein. What's the next question? Well, if I, were young, if I were a young, you know, if I were a young man today, I would, I would probably want to work on the brain and ask, you know, how is the brain constructed? How do we uh, store ideas? How do we retrieve them? How do we act on them. So I think there's a lot of work to be done there. But it might not necessarily lead to structures right away. You might have to, it might, you might have to understand circuits and how neurons form circuits. So not everything is structural. And I but have at, at some point it will become structural. Once you understand circuits, then you've got to understand how the circuits work and then you'll go back to structure. But so, sometimes structure is premature. You have to uh, get the underlying phenomenon first. And I have to ask you, Venkit, now you're president of the Royal Society, which is something for an outsider and, you know, someone who didn't really do that well early in your, your <laughs> yes. career. But, but your mother, if you told her that at, you know, when you were 19, she would have just thought you were mad. But anyway, so, but you were a bit dismissive about physics and you couldn't find any interesting problems. Now you're president of the Royal Society. Have you changed your view of physics? Oh, I, I was never dismissive of physics. I, I, was just, I was just worried that I, the problems in physics were very, very hard to make headway on. And I was questioned, and I was working on a boring problem in physics, I thought, okay. Uh, possibly it's because I didn't have the aptitude or, or something. So, it, so the lesson I drew is never work on something you're not interested in. Because if you, if you do that, you really won't do well. You know, you, you just won't, your heart won't be in it. Uh, but I think physics is an amazingly elegant beautiful discipline, you know, because it, it, it takes all these fundamental phenomena of nature and then somehow, you know, synthesizes an abstract understanding of them. So I, I'm a deep admirer of physics, actually. More questions? Um, so if you, can, if you know the structure of a ribosome, could you theoretically recreate a ribosome and stimulate it to produce enzymes, uh, no, um, proteins artificially, for example, uh, for uses 
uh, for uses for other things. For example, like the, um, the bacteria Ideonella sacchiensis can produce enzymes to break down plastic. So could you artificially recreate its ribosomes and then use that to yeah. produce those enzymes? So that is actually, you know, Jason Chin, who's a colleague of mine at the LMB, is engineering ribosomes that will actually won't even start on the all of the thousands of messenger RNAs that the bacteria makes or the cell makes, but will only start on their own special mRNAs. And then he can modify these ribosomes so they can add what, what are called unnatural amino acids. That is not one of the 20 natural amino acids. So he can create proteins which have amino acids not found in nature. Now, those are still proteins in the sense they're amino acids and they're linked together by a peptide bond. But you could see in the future, you might be able to evolve or create a kind of ribosome that makes, up, makes an entirely different type of polymer. And so you never know where science is going to lead. I mean, in 20 or 30 years, we might be able to, using these ribosomes for ways, in ways that uh, we never could have anticipated. But one thing we would know is that these structures allowed us to think along those lines. And it is extraordinary the way that science, uh, you, you develop um, a, an answer to a problem, and yet the, the application of that piece of knowledge may be so far ahead. Yeah. And, and actually, we put our scientists in the position of making them say what impact they might have. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always felt this, this, you know, when you're doing curiosity-driven fundamental research, People should realize fundamental research has paid for itself many, many times over. And actually, any new transformative technology, whether it's electricity, which you know, Michael Faraday, who lectured in this theater many times, he was asked, you know, what good is electricity? You know, because he had discovered electromagnetic induction. And he said, Well, someday you may tax it. Well, nobody really he didn't realize <laughs> that the tax on electricity today would be in the trillions of dollars, okay? And so I, I think, you know, but it took, you know, 50, 50 years after Faraday before it became a, a commercially viable uh, thing. And today, we, you know, this, this talk wouldn't be possible without electricity. Mm -hmm. So I think um, we understand. Another favorite example is when Newton discovered his laws of motion. He didn't imagine that 300 years later, those laws of motion would be used to launch satellites for communication. Okay, or here's the weirdest example, you know, special and general relativity by Einstein. You know, the fundamental fabric of space and time. It seemed so abstract. No one imagined it would have any applications uh, because it involved things that were traveling, you know, close to the speed of light and so on uh, to really be noticeable. But it turns out if you don't apply corrections from relativity for the time signals from satellites, your GPF will drift off by several hundred meters a day. And so, you know, you would not be able to use GPS on your phone without relativistic corrections. So who could have imagined that? You know? But it took 100 years before that application. Another question. Were there any surprises? Um, because the teams that you were talking about, they were mostly working on individually the 30S and 50S subunits. Were there any surprises in the structure of the whole ribosome put together? Well, there weren't any surprises, partly because we didn't know what it looked like. Okay, we had no idea what it looked like. So everything, in a sense, was a surprise. Uh, I think the way 
that the, these proteins sort of snake into the ribosome, the proteins that make up the ribosome itself, uh, you know, have these long extensions that help the RNA fold. I mean, th that, that was really something that we hadn't quite anticipated. Uh, many of the motifs, the architectural motifs in the RNA that allow it to fold, you know, into this complicated structure, uh, those were all new. So you can think of it as new, uh, but in terms of surprise, I'm not so sure. Uh, one surprise was, uh, came in the 30s, where we wanted to ask, why is it so accurate uh, in, in reading the code? And it turns out that it recognizes the shape of base pairs. So, you know, the RNA has three bases that are supposed to be red, and they're red by three bases that come in from this tRNA adapter molecule that brings along the amino acid to build the protein. And when these three bases meet the, their, their counterparts, they form base pairs, just like the base pairs in a DNA helix. Now, Jim Watson, uh, for all his, uh, you know, Character, characters, characteristics, shall we say, uh, was the guy who figured out that these bases, you know, like A forming a T or C forming a G, have exactly the same shape. So A, T, and C, G have the same shape as each other. And it turns out the ribosome actually recognizes the shape of these base pairs. And that wasn't really known uh, before these structures came out. And I guess it's the, when you see um, a long thing that's got to go in and then you've got a tunnel shape, that kind of gives you some clue that what's going on. Yes. Yeah. Um, which, sorry, which tunnel did you mean? Well, uh, <laughs> just the, 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 but when you're, you mean where the mRNA yes, goes yes, into yes, the ribosome? Yes. Yeah, so, so, you know, it forms this channel. So actually, you know, you can see in light blue, there's a snaky thing that goes into the yellow thing. So it's effectively going into a groove in the small subunit. So, so you know, the ribosome, is, it's just, looks like this monstrous kludge, you know, so what's called a Rube Goldberg kind of machine, because that's what evolution is like. Evolution is, works by natural selection. It's not designed, you know, to be kind of some sleek thing. So it's this sort of messy looking big object, but, but the beauty is it works really well. And it works better than any protein synthesizer that humans have been able to design in the lab. You know, so you, know, you have to give nature some credit for it. And there you are, you heard it from the Nobel Prize when a snaky thing, yellow thing. <laughs> <laughs> any more questions? This is a bit more of a technical question about actually cooling the crystals. Is there any reason why you used um, liquid nitrogen rather than cooling them more slowly and trying to sort of get a more um, perfect and bigger crystal? Would that not have been easier to see rather than cooling them more quickly and getting smaller, less perfect crystal forms? So, sorry, I, I didn't quite understand the question. Um, you, you said not to use liquid nitrogen, but what was the alternative? Um, well, I'm not really sure. Maybe something like sort of dry ice or sort of just do it more gradually. Oh, I see. No, than... Yeah, so no, that's true. So, so Jacques Dubouchet, who won the Nobel Prize last year uh, for electron microscopy, but actually this technique that he developed was essential for developing uh, cooling for crystallography as well, showed that you have to cool crystals to below 100 degrees or so Kelvin very quickly for 
the water not to form ice. The reason is that in a protein crystal, about half of the crystal is actually water because it's the water in between the molecules of the protein which are touching each other in just a few places. And all the spaces in between, there's water. Now, if you cool it to, say, dry ice, what will happen is the water will freeze and it'll form ice crystals. And ice, as you know, expands compared to water. And so it'll shatter your protein crystal. So what you want to do is cool it so fast that the water doesn't form ice. It does something called, it, it, form, it vitrifies, which means it becomes like a glass. And that then doesn't expand and it preserves the crystal in its original shape. And that, that was the key trick to getting these crystals to cool. Let me just go to your life after the Nobel Prize because it's, it's sort of constant publicity, it's constant travel, it's, it's constant uh, yeah. more rewards. If you get a Nobel Prize, it, there are more rewards I, I, to come. Yeah, there are, I, you know, so I have to tell, so I'll address both those questions. So first is, I, I talk in the book about what I call the Matthew effect. You know, this is after Matthew chapter 13, verse 12, which is... Uh, to him who hath, more shall be given, and he shall have even more abundance. And from him who hath not, shall be taken away even that which he hath. <laughs> A rather harsh judgment. But you know, uh, what happens is you get the Nobel Prize, and suddenly, you know, all these societies want to make you an honorary fellow, and they give you all these, you know, honorary, they want to give you honorary degrees and elect you to their, you know, academies and so on and uh, invite you to all sorts of things. And it can really go to your head. And I call this disease, and many Nobel laureates have received the prize long after they're past their prime. And suddenly, you know, they're, they're in, their, in the limelight again, and they love it. They love all the adulation. They get mistaken for geniuses, which most of them are not. And, and so, you know, and everybody's hanging on every word that they say. So I call this a disease called post-Nobelitis. Unlike pre-Nobelitis, which is that anxiety that people have, am I going to get the prize or not? You know, that's, so, so they go spend all their time jetting around the world and giving talks and you know, being wined and dined. But you don't have to be like that. So I'll tell you one thing. When I became president of the Royal Society, my fellow officers were shocked because, uh, that is the other four vice presidents, they were shocked because I didn't have any frequent flyer status on any airline. You know, not silver, not bronze, nothing, you know? And the reason was, I didn't really, I, I would just say no to most things. And we, our productivity after the prize was actually just, the, the five years after the prize was better than the five years just before the prize. So it's really very much up to you how you want to live your life. Of course, that's changed now because as president of the Royal Society, I did go from nothing to gold in a year, I should say. <laughs> but because you do have to represent the Royal Society and you do have to uh, you know, travel, that's part of your job. It's, if you take it on, you have to, you know, the, you, that's part of your responsibility. But um, I, I do take a, make a crack about the Royal Society as well because I said, you know, one of the most unlikely honors. I mean, here I was a lab rat at the LMB, you know, mostly known for his work on the ribosome. And suddenly somebody calls me up and asks me if I want to be president of the Royal Society, you know. Well, yeah. how given, unlikely was that? You know, and given its pedigree, you know, who am I to say no, right? I mean, you know, so as, as my, my sister had a, 
sister's professor, my sister's also, a, she's a, quite a well-known TB scientist, but her professor said that whenever he got an honor, his mother would say, well, better you than some stranger. So that was sort of my attitude, you know? <laughs> but I thought it was a very odd thing, and I actually told them, look, you know, are you sure? And, and by the way, you mentioned Vera, and Vera's reaction was, do they have any idea what you're really like? <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm loving Vera. I'm loving Vera. <laughs> so anyway, so I, I told them all, I said, look, you know, I'm not a mover and shaker, and I, I haven't had any, you know, broad leadership experience, and I didn't grow up in Britain, so I don't have this extensive network of contacts and so on. But they sort of ignored all my objections, and I said they elected me in what I think of as their typical North Korean-style election with only one name on the ballot. <laughs> Sorry, it's a little wicked of me. <laughs> well, Vanky, I, I don't know about you, but I've just, it, it's been such a pleasure listening to you. I've so enjoyed uh, talking to you. And I'm going to go on and go back to his book again. Uh, do read it, because I just think it's not just this fantastic sort of gripping read about the race uh, to uh, uncover the structure of the ribosome, but I think it does give you a really good insight into how science is done and how technology moves on and suddenly makes problems tractable. And now Richard Henderson, with his Nobel Prize last year, invent the inventor of something that now makes decoding structure much easier much easier so it it's a constant march um and it's been a pleasure to be with you this evening thank you very much i've really thank enjoyed you. that's it for this month thanks for listening if you like this episode please leave us a review on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts it really does make a big difference and if you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. You can donate as little as $1 a month and you'll get access to exclusive content, early releases and digital freebies. Thanks!